Do you love a prodigal? Do you feel like you are lost in a scary and endless wilderness? Welcome to the When You Love a Prodigal podcast. I am Judy Douglas, and I spent more than 15 years in that wilderness. I believe together we will discover help and hope for your journey. Well, welcome back to When You Love a Prodigal podcast. I am so excited that you are here today for this session that we're having. It's going to be so special. My very special guests are Eugene. Oh, no, he said Gene. Gene and Carol Kent. And they... Uh, have had an amazing ministry. Uh, Carol has started the Speak Up uh, Ministries that includes training on speaking and smaller groups now and, and a master class and all sorts of things. And Jean basically is the hot behind the scenes making it all stay together. And that's wonderful. But what we'll really hear from them today is because they have a ministry called Speak Up for Hope. And that's because of a very challenging and hard event in their life. Um, and they're going to tell us a little bit about it. So, Carol and Jean, thank you for being here. Welcome. And I just have a first question for you. And that is, give us a little of the background that especially led into Speak Up for Hope. Mm. Okay. Judy, you've already gotten me in trouble with my mother for <laughs> and she would be very happy that you called me Eugene, though. That's so that's who I really did it good. for. Moms I, need all my, the affirmation they, they can they get. Certainly yes, do. They certainly do. And she would probably say that I was a prodigal, but not very long. <laughs> of course, out of three brothers, uh, she loved me the most. Of course. <laughs> uh, and that just does bring up our past, which... Um, I grew up in a family that um, we lived in a little town in Michigan, and my father worked on the railroad. We never went to church. At least I should say my mom and dad never went. They would send us three boys. I'm the oldest of three boys. They'd send us down the street to a church. And so I just remember, you know, going to a Sunday school class there, but I never really heard the gospel. But when I was in the Ninth grade, a new family moved to town, and they had a red-haired daughter who was in my class. And mm. I knew her name was Carol, and that's about all I knew about her. And, wow. <laughs> and, and so we just knew each other in school. This was Carol Affman. And anyway, for a, a couple years, everything went along. My dad, though, had an ulcer when I was in the 11th grade. And he was hospitalized while he was in the hospital, Carol's father, because the reason they moved to this little town was he was a pastor and he was a pastor of a small church there. And he made hospital calls and stopped in the room my dad was in, invited him to church. So we started going, mom and dad, or dad came home from the hospital and said, we're going to start visiting this church. When he said, what? But dad <laughs> was very strict. So we had to do what he said. And we started visiting this church. And that was the first I heard the gospel then where her father would open the Bible, and he would take a passage of Scripture and explain it. And uh, then he would show how Jesus was the major part of that explanation, and he wanted to be part of my life. And he would give that invitation at the end if anybody who was interested in, in finding more, more about Jesus to come down front. 
And I was very interested, but I'm not going down front because they're going to take you in the back room and I don't know what yeah. they do with you. <laughs> so a few weeks later, her mother and father came over to our house and they came in, sat around our kitchen table. And I stood there as a 17-year-old listening while uh, her father had a coffee cup in one hand, had his Bible in the other hand, and he explained the gospel to my parents. And then he got to the end of it and he looked at my railroad tough um, very uh, strict father, and he asked him if he was willing to get on his knees around that table and to confess his sin and ask Christ into his heart. And I thought, my dad's going to hit this guy. But he didn't. He said, yes, he wanted to do that. And my mother said, yes. And I just spoke up and said, can I do that too? And the three of us began our uh, spiritual journey right yeah. then. What and a Judy, story. it is. And mom and dad <laughs> got home and told me Gene Kent had just become a Christian, and that increased the dating pool to three because we were <laughs> only allowed to date Christians. And so, uh, I, little did I know, while I was at home doing the mundane job of babysitting, my mother and dad were out winning my future husband to Jesus Christ. Oh, how awesome! So we got married right after we got out of college, and five years later, we gave birth. Uh, I gave birth. I did the hard labor. <laughs> Yes. Uh, to Jason Paul Kent, and he was a great young man, loved Jesus, went to the Naval Academy, made his parents proud, and uh, he met and married a previously married woman who had two little girls. And there were multiple allegations of abuse involving the biological father, and uh, Jason became very anxious. And in retrospect, we saw him unraveling mentally, emotionally, and spiritually as his fears for his girls increased. And uh, we got a middle-of-the-night phone call one year after they were married telling us her son had been arrested for the murder of his wife's first husband. And he was in the jail in Orlando. And uh, we went through two and a half years and seven postponements of the trial before our son was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. What a hard, hard thing. Hard it, to live It through. is still a hard thing. I know. It is still a hard thing. We're living it. But um, we are here to say that in the middle of the deepest sorrow parents can go through with whatever their situation is with their own child, God is still in control, and he has a plan beyond what we can see at the moment and even today. Even today, yes. Wow. That's such a, a hard place to be, and, and many of our listeners are in hard places. Oh, yes. And they might not be that, but they will be very challenging to them and fearful, and, and you, you're out of control. You don't know what to do. Yes. And that's what we're hoping to do is provide some pathways and some help. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> we're going to be starting after this, the one that will come after this uh, will be on the subject of time. And the reason that we talk about time, and I know you've even asked this question, is that is one of the most common questions people who love a prodigal will ask. How long, Lord? When will this end? How long does this go on? And, and so we're going to be looking at some things that help us have God's perspective on time and deal with time. And as we have talked, you've told me some things you've had to learn in the area of time. And so maybe you could um, kind of begin with that. 
Well, Judy, one of the things that happened after Jason's conviction and sentencing is that I I wrote a book called When I Lay My Isaac Down on giving up what you love most, and in our case, our child, to the God who loved our child even more than we did. And then 10 years went by, and the publisher said, I think this book needs another chapter. And Judy, you just hit it right on the head, that nail on the head, because that chapter is on perseverance. And when you think about time, you think, oh, Lord, won't you give me the answer to my prayer now? I have begged, I have pleaded for something to change, something to budge. And so many parents deal with that. And then a child who's caught in addiction winds up back in addiction. And a child- So often. Yes, (laughs) too often. And you say, Lord, why aren't you answering my prayer? And so one of the things we are learning is that we're not home yet. And sometimes we don't get the answers to our prayers in our timing or in this lifetime. But that does not mean that there can't be purpose and meaning and hope and faith and an ability to help others along the way who have also known what it's like to wait on a prodigal. And so I'm here to say that Time doesn't have to be our enemy. Time can be our friend because it draws us closer to the Lord and it helps us to see with an eternal focus instead of just what's in front of us, which is the next huge obstacle and disappointment. Do you have something to add to that as the dad in this situation? I know how hard this is. Not yours. It's maybe harder than most of them, but it's a hard thing, the waiting and not knowing. Judy, that that is so true. I know uh, when this first happened, you know, and we had to wait uh, two and a half years before we even had a trial. And while we were doing that waiting, we kept wondering, well, why do we have to wait so long? And we, we understand now that there's reasons to wait, you know, and all of the details have to come out before a trial can take place. And and then when when the results of the trial and the sentencing took place and he was found guilty, you know, I, I remember I do lots of walking. And so I would be out walking and I would look up towards the heavens and I'd often walk in the evening and uh, see all of those stars up there and ask God why... Uh, did he get the sentence of life in prison without parole? You know, and I don't even have a handle on what that means as far as intellectually, I know it just means, okay, he's never going to come out of prison unless, until he dies. Um, and as a father, that's not what I would like to see. It's a long so time. So I know that... He's got to find something meaningful in life because that's what I have to do, too. That's what all of us have to do as we deal with whatever time we have is we have to find something meaningful. And the more we can do that, then uh, we see God using uh, whatever it is that, that we find our hands to do. So we have lots of assignments for our son, or he gives us assignments, too, but he finds a lot of things to, uh, to do, especially for other men there which helps him see that his time is not wasted. That helps. Yes. Mm-hmm. That you're not just living here with nothing. Yes. And so maybe we'll get a little more on that sure. in a little bit. But you talked to me about making hope 
faith-filled choices and that that was part of your survival through this was learning to make the choices that gave hope so one of them you mentioned was choosing life over emotional death what does that mean judy in the beginning when all of this happened uh, the word got out and people started sending us cards and they came from all over the country because we've ministered in many places and many of them were sympathy cards the kind you get when somebody People passes dies. away. Yes. And let's be honest, they don't have a Hallmark greeting card line for you to send to parents whose children have committed murder. So they were doing the best they could with the lyrics they found. And I remember one day going through those cards and I tossed them in the air and I said, my son is not dead, he is alive. And then it hit me once again, somebody else's son was dead. There was a father, there was a stepmother, there was a sister. They, they were planning a funeral while we were planning a trial for first degree murder. So immediately we began praying for the family of the deceased, knowing they were in agony of soul. And our son would be the first to say that what he did was against the laws of God and man. And he had begun to make an idol out of his own ability to save his girls from what he perceived was a danger. And uh, he may not have known all of the facts, but that's what he believed. And so we we just realized that we could live in this state of, of sadness all the time and choosing to curl up in the embryo position and choose not to go out in public, or we could uh, move in a different direction called life. And one of my friends started sending me shoebox greeting cards instead of sympathy cards. They would say things like brain cells come and brain cells go, but fat cells live forever. <laughs> or I'm a perfect 10. I just keep it covered with fat so it won't get scratched. And I found myself laughing out loud. And it surprised me because I really didn't know if I could ever laugh again. And it was a reminder to choose life. Is there any splash of joy in this day that I can choose in the middle of this great sorrow? And then God brought scripture to mind, like John 10, 10, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. So we started to be intentional after a while. We had to allow ourselves a lot of time to grieve, but we became intentional about saying, what are we going to do today that will be life-giving instead of energy draining? That's beautiful and helpful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what specifically, can you give an example of you chose to do this to get life coming from this instead of? Well, in my case, I, I started to go out in public again because I was hiding. I, I pulled the shades. It, I would peek to see who was at the door before I would let anybody in because so many times when you have a prodigal, you have false shame and false guilt about what your child has done. And I was trying to protect myself. So a huge step forward to me was to step out in public and face other people knowing they knew what my son had done. And Jean, how about you? <laughs> I know one of, one of the first things that I did was one of the guys that I knew at church uh, was a Christian counselor. And uh, I was dealing with guilt, you know, which is false guilt, and dealing with shame, as Carol said. But anyway, I called up this guy. His name is Dan. 
And I just said, hey, I need to talk to you about something. And so we ended up having breakfast together. And for the, about the next 15 years, we had breakfast one morning a week for about the next 15 years and just talked about life. And so it was a, a mutually good thing that we did together. So I ended up uh, just helping put my life in perspective because all of us, you know, as we deal with prodigal children, as we deal with whatever the situation we have, is trying to put that in perspective. Um, and we often find once we, when we do hear other people's stories, we find out, boy, my story's not that bad compared to some other ones. <laughs> yes. And I wouldn't trade places with some people that we've talked yes. to. Yes, I've been there as well. Well, you mentioned several times shame. Yeah. And one of the things you told me was that you had to learn to choose vulnerability, mm -hmm. which is means shame or fear or just hiding from people mm -hmm. who are going to ask you or assume things. So how did you learn? How were you able to, to be vulnerable with well, people? Well, Judy, I had taught a Bible study fellowship class, and there were about 350 women in that study every week. They knew me well. And I trained a group of leaders who were precious friends to me. And I decided that uh, I either had to hide or I had to tell my story. There was no middle ground there. We had to be the real deal with the people we knew. And Jean and I discussed this together. What were we going to do? Were we going to quit ministry and ever being on a public platform again? Yes. Or we were we going to say, this is what has happened to us, and this is what we've learned, and this is what God has done for us, and you can find hope and help too. So I, I just remember so vividly uh, going into the beauty salon to get my hair colored and cut for the first time after the news came out in our paper. And I'll, I'll never forget that feeling of walking in and looking around and noticing that everybody was quiet all of a sudden, like, oh, no, oh, no, the mother of the murderer just walked in. Or I bet she's embarrassed to be seen in public today. I don't know if I should look up or down. This is really awkward. I thought I could read their minds. All these, I'm glad you can laugh now. Oh, <laughs> wow. The thoughts were just <laughs> swirling. And I was tempted to turn and run. But in the back of that salon, I saw Azam, my Iranian eyebrow plucker. And precious Azam saw my need and felt my pain. And she took me by the hands, took me to the back of the salon. She put her arms around me and she cried. And she said, oh, Carol, I'm so sorry about what's happened. I pray for you. I pray for your husband. I pray for your son. And then she pointed at the wall that separated us from all of the other people. And she said, don't you worry about them. They will find someone else to talk about next week. And you know what? She was right. I've discovered most people have enough trouble of their own. They don't have time to think about our tr trouble all the time. And after I began sharing, one of those women who had been in my Bible study class came to me one day and she said, uh, Carol, I used to think you were perfect, but now I think we could be friends. And she was really saying, thank you for being the real deal. Thank you for not hiding what has happened. Thank you for not justifying it because it was wrong. It was horrific, hor horrendous sin on the part of our son. And, and no matter what his reasons or what he believed about the father of the, the deceased, he believed 
that it was wrong. And so she said, thank you for not hiding that and for telling us what happened. I needed to know that. And so from then on, we started being honest after the, the trial with our audiences. And I had a woman come up to the book table afterwards, and she was all hunched over. She said, my husband's been incarcerated for the last 18 years, and no, nobody knows. He's getting out in one month. And I looked at her, and I said, um, is he coming home to live with you? She said, yes, we're going to try to make a go of it. And then she stood to her full height, and with confidence, she said, Today, you've given me the courage to start telling my story. I'm going to quit hiding in false shame and false guilt, and I'm going to tell people what's happened to us. I want to give people hope the way you have given me hope. Well, behind her, there were three young adult girls, and they were holding hands. And one of them spoke up and said, Carol, we're sisters. We sat out in the auditorium after you spoke, and, and we, we decided if you can have the courage to tell your story, uh, we can tell ours. We were repeatedly abused by our daddy during our growing up years, and we have never told the secret. We are going to get Christian counseling, what Jean found was important right in the beginning, and then we're going to share with other victims of abuse so we can help them to find the courage to help others and to overcome what has happened to them. And that is such a gift when God takes the struggles and the pain and the hard, hard things in our lives and turns them around to minister to other people to give them hope. Yes. So anything else you wanted to add? Judy, you know, we who believe in the uh, scriptures of the Bible find a very unique thing in that God, in as God tells various stories about uh, famous people in the scriptures, he points out all, he points everything out about them, not just the good things that they did, but he also is not afraid of showing the bad choices that they make too. Just like uh, David in the like scriptures, David, you know, yes. <laughs> is ended up committing murder of all things. And uh, God is just uh, notorious for, for being transparent uh, about mankind, you know, and then all of that is for a purpose so that we can all see that, hey, that's he forgives, me. He, he forgives. forgives. <laughs> and that's what we want to communicate with people. That's, that's beautiful. And that's a main message of my book. And my ministry is love, mercy, grace. And, and that's what God gives. And then the amazing thing is he then lets it flow through us to other people. And when you have been able to step aside from the shame and instead embrace the fact that God would bring good out of it, what a, what a thing. And your son has done the same. Yes, he has. So that's amazing. You mentioned to me a number of other choices we need to make on a long painful journey. <laughs> one would be forgiveness, one is gratitude, one is staying power or perseverance. Anything you could comment on those? Well, I want to just say about gratitude that one weekend I was visiting my son and I said, Jason, how do you hold on to hope in the middle of a life sentence? He said, Mom, I have a gratitude list. Every time that cloud of despair and depression comes over me, I get out a sheet of paper and I write down everything I have to be thankful for. 
And he said, I am thankful. I have two parents who will be my advocates for as long as they live. I am thankful that on a compound that houses up to 1,700 men, I can be a missionary on the inside. He said, that's a lot to be thankful for. And we we began trying to make lists ourselves of things we could be thankful for. And one was that we had stretcher bearers, people who were on an email update list who carried us when we could not carry ourselves. And uh, they made monetary gifts. We were desperate. Uh, they, you know, yes. we, we were people who were can-do firstborn people. Gene and I are both firstborns. You know what that makes both of us? Bossy. Bossy. <laughs> and so we we had to learn how to be gracious receivers instead of always being the people who were on the giving end. And we that was a hard lesson. Yes, it's, that is a hard lesson. It is a hard lesson. And so as, as we began uh, this journey, we discovered that the more thankful our hearts were, the more we were able to praise God in all things. And, uh, and I think, you know, one of the other things I had to, to do was that whole thing of staying power. And Gene and I actually co-wrote a book with David and Cindy Lambert this year on staying power. And honey, you want to just comment on how we've had to learn we're in this together? Yes. You know, oftentimes we uh, uh, get mad over things. I mean... (laughs) I know that. (laughs) And I was just going to say men get perhaps uh, more outwardly mad than women. It seems like women are better at keeping it uh, hidden at times. We keep secrets. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, thank you. And... uh, but I remember when we when we first began our journey and uh, the sentencing had been done and everything, and we uh, were just, we were at home trying to figure out what to do with life. And I just remember being in our closet one day and Carol is very organized. Her desk is very organized and her life is very organized. But when we get to the closet, the closet is not very organized. And I just, <laughs> one day out of the clear blue, it seemed like it was out of the clear blue, I just blew up about, and I wish you could organize this closet too, Carol. And, and, I was just, and give up clothing you haven't worn in the past year <laughs> so it could be less crowded. And my response was just to burst out in a an angry tone and say, I keep this house so neat. How dare you criticize the way I keep this closet? And then I found myself falling into his arms. We both had tears and we looked at each other and one of us said, you know, this isn't the real issue, is it? Exactly. Right. That and is not what this is about. No. Yes. And, and so we realized that the small stuff escalates into big stuff because of the issue you're having with your prodigal. And we had to learn to practice, to get back to one of those other words you mentioned, instant forgiveness and to become what we, we've, in our Staying Power book, we talk about choosing to be unoffendable. That that I look at you and I know you A love me. A message you could preach in the world today. <laughs> and oh his goodness. heart toward yeah. me is good. I know he loves me. We've we've had a lot of years together. And so I am going to choose, even though your tone hurt my feelings and really was, seemed a bit aggressive, I am going to choose to forgive you because I know your heart toward me is loving and kind. That's beautiful. Yes. You know what? I should throw in here where we went to college was just a very strict school 
And um, one of the interesting things about it was you couldn't, you, it was almost that you couldn't have a date on the campus, but you could, they had one place that you could go for a date and that was the dating parlor. And it, and it looked like it looked like a big furniture store, and they had couches and chairs in the dating parlor, and you could go, you could meet your date there, and you would have to check in, and then you were assigned a two chairs to sit in or a couch, and then they had monitors who walked around to make sure that you weren't touching each other. So, so uh, no I mean, no, this hands. is we know this is very hard for the listeners to believe that we were at uh, an actual an actual school like that. But you know what happened by uh, having to live like that for a few months, which was for three years, and uh, is that it caused us to talk, and so many couples don't talk enough, right. and talk about the important things in life. So we ended up, you know, as uh, 19, 20, 21 year olds, we were just talking about what we wanted out of life. And we quickly found that we wanted similar things, that we wanted to have honesty between each other. And we wanted to, you know, that I wanted her to know that if I do get upset about something, I'm not mad at her, I'm mad at the situation, you know? And all of those kinds of things we talked about a lot before marriage took place. So we had our own premarital counseling in that, in that kind of setting. Well, and I should add that one of the things we talk about in the Staying Power, Power book is that it's good to make pre-decisions. And those pre-decisions uh, are, yes, I am going to be committed to you no matter what. That I That is an absolute in my life. I will be committed to you. And so when we make that decision ahead of time, it helps us when we hit the really tough stuff with our kids. Well, and, and people who have prodigals, their marriages are at risk. Yes. And it, it drives a wedge or it creates so much tension in their individual lives that they take it out on each other. So these are wonderful advice-giving kinds of uh, life-giving uh, things that you're sharing that can help them persevere mm -hmm. through this hard journey that you know, they're Judy, on. Sometimes we forget that we do have an enemy. Oh, I and don't we, and forget we don't, that usually. And we, don't, <laughs> and we don't talk about it very much. That <laughs> there is an enemy of our souls Absolutely. as believers, and he wants to uh, wreak havoc he wants to have all of our marriages torn apart. He wants our lives torn apart. He wants us to have, have uh, up, upheaval in our lives and to not have peace and to not have uh, uh, friendship and security. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't want us to have communication with mm -hmm. each other. Right. And, and I know just what ministry that uh, Campus Crusade does is it wants to promote communication and ministry one to another, and to share that, that Jesus Christ makes that all possible. Thank you, Lord, yeah. that that Thank is you. true. Mm -hmm. That is true. You say one of the important things to do is um, to have purposeful action steps. Yes. What would some <clears throat> of those be? <laughs> well, when I think about purposeful action, I think Jean and I together soon found ourselves standing in a long line waiting to get through the intake process, sometimes up to two hours in blistering sun or torrential rain. 
And we met a whole lot of families. That is to go into the prison. Yes, to go to visit our son. (laughs) And uh, we met families. And many of them had children who were waiting in that long line. And we started to hear what the needs were and how some of them were feeding a family of of, uh, four kids and the, the mom who was bringing the kids in and the dad who was incarcerated, feeding six people out of the vending machines in the food window and that they needed funds. And then we saw how tattered the games were in the visitation area. And we learned from our son that the men needed reading material, and some of them were in in, uh, Bible study programs and needed books for their small groups. And the Lord put it on our hearts to do something. So for us, that purposeful action involved launching what we call Speak Up for Hope, which is a nonprofit organization that benefits inmates and their families. And uh, Jean, you want to share some of the things we do and, and how you work with Jason with uh, helping the guys on the inside. Uh, Especially during the pandemic times, you know, visitation for, uh, what, six, for almost eight months, there was no visitation in, in, in Florida prisons. And I know it's true around much, much of the country. And then they just started visitation again a couple of months ago, but it's just very, very strict. And we knew that, um, that, the families weren't able to get in and see their loved one. But Jason knew knows lots of men there because our son has been in prison now for over 21 years. So it's been a long time, and he knows lots of men there. We know lots of families. And um, so he knows that there's men there who never get a visit either. And so he and I uh, usually, especially at Christmas time, he would pick out 20 or 30 or 40 different guys who don't get visits. And uh, we would either buy books for that person and have them sent to him, knowing that it's coming from uh, Speak Up for Hope, or we'll have money put in their inmate account. And the inmate account is what the inmate can use to go to the canteen and buy some snacks. Now, um, Some people might think, well, you know, snacks, that's not a very biblical ministry. (laughs) But these men, uh, the kinds of foods that they get in the uh, cafeteria are not the best kinds of foods either. Well, they're not very tasty. And men who don't have anybody who helps them financially at all don't get a snack. You know, and especially with the pandemic, we all are pretty notorious for liking our snacks anymore. <laughs> and uh, so Jason would, uh, would, would uh, earmark and tell me about different men and then Speak Up for Hope would put money in their accounts. But we would also put it in, um, then I would send them a note, and on the note I would tell them that, uh, you know, so much money is going into your account, and we would just like you to consider using half of the money on yourself and then identifying another guy that you would use the other half of the money for or whatever amount you want. And we had some great response from oh. guys who uh, who did that. And one guy wrote me back and said, you wrote me that? And I thought to myself, I'm spending all this money on myself. I am not helping anybody else. <laughs> but he said a couple days later, he still had money left because he hadn't spent it all. And he said, you know, that probably would be a good idea. So he did help some other guys too. What a wonderful yeah. thing. So 
Go ahead. Uh, well, Judy, what's been exciting is the fan went out in the dorm of 70 guys where Jason is, and the Florida prisons are not air-conditioned, so it's over 100 degrees during many weeks of the summer, which is very difficult. And Speak Up for Hope was able to buy a commercial-grade fan. And Jason said it calms their nerves. It's like, oh, they can get in the breeze of that fan, and it calms tempers down. It, it's been amazing. Then it is so thrilling. We get to send boxes of hope to wives and moms of inmates. And one mom said, this arrived on my birthday. How did you know? And they're filled with comfort items for women. And we didn't know. God knew. God knew. God right. knew. And and so uh, we put... We give guys postage stamps, I mean, for them to be able to write a letter. And we work with a company that supplies year-old but brand-new greeting cards at a great discount for prisons. And the guys can send a real birthday card or a real Christmas card to their family members. And we have found that when we give gifts of love like that, it tenderizes their heart for the gospel. I was speaking in one prison, not the one where Jason is one, one day, and an inmate came up to me and he said, Mrs. Kent, I know your son. I used to be in the prison where, where he is located. And he shared Jesus with me. And he said, uh, I, I was in a cult. I, I didn't care at all about the gospel. But he said, Jason planted seeds in my heart that made me think. And I've come to this prison and I have recently accepted Jesus Christ as my personal savior. Will you thank your son for being the first person who introduced me to who Jesus was and tell him I now live for him? Did you have a few tears? Um, more than a few. More than a few. More than a few, I'm sure. Any um, kind of sum up where Jason is now, what his situation is? He has been in over 21 years. We, uh, this is an emotional time right now because just two days ago, we found we got word from the governor's office uh, about the clemency application that we had in that Jason had in in working on clemency. Uh, clemency is a political process, and you have uh, politicians who who vote on clemency. And we weren't asking to get out of prison tomorrow. He's got a life sentence, which means he's never going to get out of prison unless he dies. Uh, so we were asking, and he was asking for uh, the powers that be for the clemency board to consider uh, a commutation of sentence, which means to get it changed from a life sentence to 30, 40 years, so that there's an end of sentence date. And, um, about uh, eight years ago, we went through clemency, and it was turned down then. And we just went through the same process now. And it finally got to the top of the pile, and it's been looked at. And they've just decided to not show clemency on any murder cases in this state right now. So uh, we had to tell our son yesterday that the clemency process was over again, and he's got to wait five years before he could reapply. And he's now 46 years old. But... He's got a great attitude about it. He knows that God is using him where he is, and he's he's probably taking taken about 1,000 guys through Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University too. So we'll be sitting there at visitation when visitation starts again, and uh, an inmate will bring his wife or his girlfriend over to our table, and he would will talk to us about, will you talk to my wife or my girlfriend, why she shouldn't buy a new car. Not, <laughs> not that 
not that you can't buy a new car, but as Dave Ramsey would share anyway, that financially, and these people don't have very much money as as um, mm-hmm. most most inmate families don't. Judy, one other thing that was really precious to me, one of the things Jason said um, as we were just going through the emotions of being turned down, you know, having been through this. At one point he said, Mom, we just have to realize life is short. God knows if I can serve him better on the inside or the outside. And he said, then life is over. And like this, we're all in heaven and we are all walking in freedom. And um, I knew he was going to be okay. Yeah, that's a wonderful thing to hear. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm sure that the three of you together have shed a lot of tears, and yet God has given you peace and joy Mm -hmm. and a fruitful ministry Mm -hmm. uh, as a result, things you would never have been able to do before. And that's a beautiful thing. I wish we had lots more time, but you have several books that you wanted to mention, so tell us about those. Well, the one we mentioned earlier is When I Lay My Isaac Down. It's just been released in paperback with a study guide in the back and that extra chapter on perseverance. And then we mentioned Staying Power, which is the book on marriage, which has to do with building a stronger marriage when life is tearing you apart. And it deals a whole lot with parents of prodigals. So I think it would really be of help to your audience. And then I had real trouble reading the Bible because my mind was so upset about what I was going through. And I I soon realized I needed to concentrate on one verse at a time because that's all my mind could hold. And then I would say, Lord, what are you speaking into my life as a result of this, this scripture? And so I wrote out what I call listening prayers, like a paraphrase of what God was speaking over my life as a result of that scripture. So I went to the publishing house and I said, I'd love to do a year's worth of devotions with a topic, just a five-minute devotional, a key quotation, that paraphrased prayer over someone's life and the actual scripture on the page so it could give them hope. And they said yes. And that book is called He Holds My Hand. He Holds My Hand. Yes. Don't We just thank the Lord that he never leaves us. He's there with us and he's holding our hands. And in any other way, we need holding up. (laughs) That's right. So you wanted to offer something about your book? Yes. Um, If anyone would like uh, a free digital download of a sampler from that book, He Holds My Hand, you can get some of the devotions. If you will just get out your cell phone and text the number uh, 55444. And then in the place where you would normally write someone a message, just write giveaway. It can be an upper or lower case, all one word, 55444 giveaway. And then they will receive a portion, a sample. They will get sample devotions from He Holds My Hand. That they can download right there. Right there. Technology, Judy, it's just amazing. It's way beyond (laughs) me, but I have young people around me. So thank you so much. Thank you. This has been absolutely wonderful. I know that our listeners will will be so blessed and encouraged and uh, given hope and some practical things to do. May I pray for you? Yes, I would love that. Father, I do thank you for Jean and, and Carol and Jason. And I just ask again for your blessing on them. Thank you for the way 
that you have taken the things that the evil one meant for evil, the harm that he was seeking to do to Jason and also to Jason's parents, and you've taken that and you've made it a, a good outcome. It's still a hard thing, but it's a an outcome of lives that are being touched, people who are being rescued, uh, needs that are being met, and what what a gift. I love that you take those hard things in our lives and you turn them into gifts to us and to then other people that we encounter. So bless them beyond what they've even asked or imagined. Thank Amen. you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you so much, Judy. Thank you. My privilege. Thank you for joining me today on the When You Love a Prodigal podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Your review helps the show reach more people with the hope and encouragement of Jesus. Don't forget, take a look at the show notes. And for more helpful information, resources, and books, check out judydouglas.com. That's Douglas with two S's. You can find me on Facebook and on Twitter and Instagram at judydouglas417. Until next week.